0: Welcome to the Soul Sessions podcast, deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale.
1: Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Pip Harry, and we are going to be talking about young adult fiction, mental health, diet culture, competitive sport and identity. Pip is an Australian author and journalist, currently based in Singapore. She is an author for children, penning three well-received young adult novels, I'll Tell You Mine, Head of the River and Because of You, which was shortlisted for three prestigious awards. Pip's latest middle-grade novel, The Little Wave, was shortlisted for the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and the 2020 CBCA Children's Book of the Year Awards. It has been adapted for the stage by Meerkat Productions. She is working on a new middle-grade novel, Are You There, Buddha?, due for release in mid-2021 with Hatchet Australia. Pip was a recipient of the 2019 May Gibbs Children Literature Trust Fellowship. Pip currently works as the editor for the non-for-profit Australia and New Zealand Association, ANSA, as well as presenting for school, festivals and other bookish events. Welcome Pip. I'm so excited to have you on the show today.
0: Hi Jody, I'm excited too.
1: Our daughters were in kindy together, so we are actually friends and we came to visit you last year in Singapore, which was very exciting and that was when of course we were all allowed to travel. <laughs> uh, how are you getting on over there at the moment? used to uh,
0: we're, we're doing pretty well. Uh, we had a period where we had a big outbreak in the worker dorms, the foreign worker dorms. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're on top of that now um, and there's less cases in the community. So, yeah, we're doing all right. We've had, we did have a period of, like, pretty strict lockdown. That was pretty tough, but uh, you know, you get through it, don't you? You have to.
1: Yeah. And I know I saw on uh, Instagram that your, your lovely pool that we all went swimming in was uh, recently refurbished and are you allowed (laughs) to, are you allowed to use it again now?
0: Yes, it was. Well, it was closed during our lockdown period. So it was closed for about eight weeks. And then it was closed for cleaning for five weeks. So I was just mournful about it because I love swimming, as you know. I know, I know. Uh, And now it's open and it's crystal blue and you can't keep me out of it. Oh, good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So will you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a writer?
0: Yes, it's, it's a long and interesting journey. But It's been a lot more challenging and full of obstacles than maybe my bio suggests. I've had a lot of knockbacks um, throughout my career and have had to show more determination, I think, than talent, really. So I started off thinking I wanted to be a journalist and I thought I would want to be quote unquote a serious journalist. (laughs) But, you know, working for somewhere like The Age, because I was in Melbourne at the time I grew up there, you know, I thought maybe I'd want to have a sports beat because I was into sports at the time. But I tried to get into this journalism course at RMIT twice and I got knocked back two times. Oh, wow. So I did an arts degree at Melbourne Uni while I was sort of trying to make it as a journo. So I worked for like a running magazine, doing their uh, events calendar, doing all the fun runs and things. (laughs) Uh, You know, I had no interest in running whatsoever, but I just wanted to get my foot in the door. Sure. Um, Eventually they let me write some pieces interviewing, you know, athletes And from there, I built up a small portfolio. It wasn't an impressive portfolio, but it was enough that gave me the confidence to apply for some magazine roles in Sydney. Uh, So I applied for a new magazine at the time called New Weekly, which later became NW Magazine. And most recently, actually, uh, that's been axed. So it's very sad to see that magazine go, even though, you know, it is pretty trashy, all Mm -hmm. that celebrity journalism. It, It is where I learnt my craft. Yep. So um, so the editor at the time, an English lady called Juliet Ashworth, she gave me the job. She flew me up to uh, Sydney and gave me a job as a reporter and I kind of went from there. So I had about 10 years as an entertainment journalist, um, which I really loved. So I ended up working for TV Week and Woman's Day as well. And then I sidestepped into travel and health as my two areas, which was really great. So I got away from all that sort of celebrity gossip and also the red carpet work, which I really found quite confronting because I'm quite shy,
1: ah, okay. <laughs> So chasing
0: after celebrities on red carpets, trying to get quotes and stuff. I found really difficult. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so I was much better suited to, you know, doing stories about heart disease and interviewing doctors and surgeons and things um, and also traveling. So for, for a while, I was a travel editor and I was sort of going around the world I constantly had my bag packed. I had my passport ready. Wow, I (laughs) didn't know
1: that. Wow.
0: Yeah, it was a great gig. Um, I kept it up for about five years, I think. And the only thing that stopped me from doing that was actually having my daughter, Sophie, Mm -hmm. um, because you can't really travel like that with a baby. Sure. So then um, also I was on the side doing a bit of fiction writing. I went to university at night. So I went to, to do night classes in novel writing and screenplays and things like that. And I did end up with a finished manuscript. And that finished manuscript was called I'll Tell You Mine.
1: Ah, uh-huh, your first book.
0: It was my first book, yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I sort of broke into to that very late. I was 35 when my book was first published. And I'd been trying to publish a book since I was 23.
1: Wow, that's determination, <laughs> isn't it? And being yeah. resilient, as they would say at our daughter's school. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Yeah, I just didn't give up on it, you know, and I think a lot of people are thinking, wow, she's been trying to write this novel for 10, 12 years. Is it ever going to happen? But I just, I knew that I had something to say and I particularly knew I had some, something to say to young people. Every time I sat down to write, it was it was young voices that I was writing and I really wanted to write a young adult novel. First of all, I was never really interested in writing for adults.
1: Mm -hmm. When we met each other and you had obviously told me that you'd written, I think, had you had two? I think you might've had two published when we met. I had never read young adult fiction before. And so it was you that introduced me to YA uh, books. And my first book was I'll Tell You Mine. And (laughs) so for those who haven't read this genre, what, can you explain what Y a is and what the age demographic
0: is so it isn't a genre y a which is many people think that it is it's okay. a suggested age range
1: ah, for a readership. Okay.
0: So, yeah, so it's um roughly between twelve and eighteen years old is y a so usually your protagonist, your main character, is that age, but not always it, so it can take many different genres. it can be sci-fi, fantasy, realistic, contemporary, it can be romance, so it can just it's really amazingly flexible, it can go anywhere.
1: Oh, okay, so that's really so that's interesting. So yeah, so the genre is, yeah, okay, so it's more an age it's range. It's everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I see. So the
0: category, I think, was developed to be a bridge between children and adults. So that's how it was originally conceived. So now they have new adult as well, which is kind of like one step above YA. Oh, okay, so also- what's that sort
1: of like 20, like? sort of early 20s or something is it the sort of
0: exactly yeah it's yeah, not of that okay. those, like university years where you've left school and uh-huh. you haven't quite started a job maybe but that hasn't done very well it's not a very popular category which I find really perplexing because that age is so full of experiences and mm. yeah
1: it is but I you know and I think we'll talk about this a bit later around identity and stuff there is something about teenage years that's particularly problematic I guess right so <laughs> well it was for me anyway (laughs)
0: I was going to say fruitful but yeah no problematic as well work
1: (laughs) so I mean you've already touched on this so a classic YA novel typically features a teen protagonist and this teen should ideally suffer with teen problems what kind of problems and themes do you write about
0: I do like how you use the word suffer there because there there is a lot of angst and and drama in the teen years, which makes it, you know, really fertile ground, Mm -hmm. I think, for, for writing about that those times. Yeah, so I write contemporary realistic YA, which deals with a lot of those sort of I hate to say it, but issues, Mm -hmm. teen problems, I suppose. But I like to think that they're like human problems as well. I don't have any troubles sort of switching from being a 45-year-old woman (laughs) to writing like a 17-year-old teenage boy, for example, because his problems are undoubtedly my problems or have been my problems. You know what I
1: mean? Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm concerned with like family and relationships, mental health, social issues. I do touch on grief and, and mainly just this loss of connection, like when when those teenagers lose connection to their friends, to their family, to the world, that's what I'm interested in and how to sort of bring them back into the world. That kind of
1: leads me on to my next question, which is around, you know, why is it important for this age demographic to read about emotional and mental health concerns? And I think, you know, that connection piece is if they are feeling disconnected from from family or friends, then it kind of, you answer that, I guess. (laughs) Um, For for me, that touches on connection.
0: Yeah, exactly. Look, I think reading fiction at whatever age is a safe place to explore feelings. And I also think it's great to see, you know, your own problems or your own mental health struggles reflected on the pages and to feel like you're kind of not alone. You know, you can Mm -hmm. really feel like you're not alone with a really good book that sort of gets you or you feel gets you it's sort of like reflecting what you're experiencing and also books offer a great deal of insight and empathy the the good books i'm talking about and they make you think about things in a slightly different way so all of that's really important i think for readers who are struggling with mental health but perhaps also you know maybe their friends are struggling with mental health their family um it's fairly you know pervasive in our society
1: it is and i'm just thinking it's a really good sort of um inroad to understanding lots of these different concerns that, like you say, everyone struggles with. I think by the time you get to, I don't know, I just noticed with adult, you know, I mean, I read a lot, but I noticed a lot with adult fiction, you don't, there's a few, but they don't tend to address these themes like YA
0: books tend to. I don't know, maybe I'm just missing them. No, I think you're right, actually. I think there's a real sort of head-on approach in in YA to to dealing with mental health Um, concerns Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. for characters there's some just incredible books in YA that deal with mental health and they're written Mm -hmm. in really interesting ways you know
1: yeah Um, I'm thinking about a lot of them are made into movies as well aren't they so they're quite those sort of yeah, yeah you know a lot of the actually the black American stories as well that are coming out they all
0: started off in YA fiction so yeah yeah there's a lot of that going on especially on Netflix I think they're picking up a lot of those YA books and making them into movies and yeah some really interesting themes Um, and they're done quite well actually some of them I'm not so keen on you know 13 Reasons Why was not a favourite of mine, but it can be done really well on the other hand so yeah
1: would you be willing to say why what wasn't I guess what you didn't like about that
0: Sure. I actually did a panel with Jay Asher, the author of that work. I got to meet him in person. And look, I think the book had really good intentions and um, connected with an audience. But I think the series was very glamorised and it sort of skimmed the surface of, of, you know, what it is to be a suicidal teen I did not think they did it well and I, I really didn't like to see that series continue but they're on to the third series as well so
1: Yeah look I'll, I'll admit I've I've watched the series but the, I think we're we're on to the third and I have actually we haven't we watched maybe one or two episodes and haven't gone back to it so my yeah. feeling was the same around the glamorization of it. It Probably. did get some people talking so I think that's always a good thing but I didn't actually realize it was an, a novel before it became the series so Thank you. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you've written that your debut uh, novel, I'll tell you mine, was inspired by a term that you spent in a Melbourne boarding school as an authority challenged teenager. I did laugh at that when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> and your years uh, also spent in a boat as a rower, and later on the banks of the river as a coach, yeah. and that informed your writing of your second novel, Head of the River. Mm -hmm. And then, because of you, was sparked by several wonderful and affirming years volunteering for Word Association, a creative writing workshop for people experiencing homelessness. So these books touch on the mother-daughter relationship, boarding school, relationships, eating disorders, body image concerns, competitive sport, and teenagers coming of age. Can you share with us a bit about your own history with these themes? And, and, And I guess I must admit, when I was reading, I'll tell you mine, I thought, oh, I wonder if this is about Pip's real life going on here. <laughs> so yeah. would, you, would you share a little bit,
0: you know, for our audience today? Sure. I mean, those are a lot of themes across you yep. know, three fairly hefty books. So yeah. Yep. Some people do say about my work that I include a lot of themes, a lot of things for people, the kids to read about and mm-hmm. um, to think about, maybe too much sometimes. But um, yeah, I'd like to get into it, you know, and I do write about things that... I feel a connection to and those sometimes spring from real life experience, some of those storylines and some of those characters. So just starting with I'll Tell You Mine, sure. Yeah, it was about a girl, Kate, who spends some time in a boarding house to sort of leave her family home because there's conflict there. And initially she feels like she's been kicked out of home and, you know, it's such a terrible thing Mm -hmm. and she really fights it. And then and then she meets someone, meets her best friend, and starts to really get comfortable in the boarding house setting. And I think that really what did spring from my experience. You know, I really struggled at home in that year nine stage. Remember year nine?
1: Yeah, everyone starts <laughs> wow. year nine the worst.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's no surprise that some parents choose to send their kids to to, you know, to boarding school, you know, in the wilderness yeah, <laughs> during year nine, yeah. you know. So It's such a tough year um, and, you you know, you sort of want to step into your independence and sort of blow off your parents and, you know, be your own person, but there's still so many rules and regulations and constrictions on that and so mm-hmm. yeah both my parents but most especially my mum was really trying to give me those boundaries and I was just trying to smash mm-hmm. them down and you know do what I wanted to do so I had a super strong personality and mm-hmm. definitely clashed with pretty much everything that my parents said or did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well as a therapist I, we would see that as a good thing at some level it's like uh, separating and becoming your own person it's the problem yep. is, is when we get stuck in that and we don't move out of it and we're like 40 and Acting like that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think I still do have a bit of my teenage rebellious spirit hanging around. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely, I, I approached writing, I'll tell you mine, to work through those teenage problems I had at that particular time, mm. you know, which was like a great deal of anger, you know, that was really explosive, you know, and I thought, I really want to write a female character in her teen years who's just super, super angry and does not know where to put that. And I think to a certain extent, I did succeed in that. This book ended up winning a, a prize for the, um, from the Family Therapist Association. Oh, as a wow. book it, yeah which means that it is used as a book for families to kind of work through this time these sort of difficult, you know, tumultuous teen years. Well, I've,
1: I've got to say, now that you say that about the anger, I mean, most of my life was spent being very, very angry and rebellious. So it's no wonder that this book really, really spoke to me.
0: Did it Resonate with you, it yeah, is, yeah. Every page is kind of dripping with that sort of teen yeah. anger and teen un- discomfort, you know, with the world. But yeah, you know, as with all my book series, I like to give a sense of hope you know, and a kind of a new beginning. And yep. i like for Kate that she sort of discovers, you know, who she is as a person and sort of resolves a lot of that family complex through the book. So, yeah, it's maybe it's a good one for a sort of 13, 14-year-old girl or boy to yep. read, I think. Yeah. And
1: Head of the River, that was of particular interest to me as well, obviously, because there's themes of eating uh, issues and <laughs> competitive sports. So would you say a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, so head of the rip. So I was a um, competitive rower between the ages of, I think, sort of 15, 16, and maybe I quit when I was about 20, 21.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I really want and I was also a coach for three years. So I coached high school girls. So I coached year eights and nines uh, oh, for God. four years, I think. <laughs> so not, not oh, only did had... you uh, live through that, you then went back and lived
1: through it again. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I did. I never won much, you know. I was just—I was kind of like I tried really hard. I trained really hard. I was super strong, but I never won many races, you know. And, mm. and even the girls that I coached didn't win races. I think I had a two seconds and a fourth. They all got into their finals. And they did really well. Like two silver medals. is, you know, it's like no joke, you know, mm. when you're in the the top levels of the state. But, um, but yeah, I just wasn't a winner, you know. And so, anyway, I thought I'd sit down and write this book about two kids who are struggling through, you know, a rowing experience at the end of their high school years and trying to make the top boat. But I thought I'd write it from two perspectives, from a girl who's very driven and A-type um, and a boy, her brother, her twin, mm-hmm. who's very lazy Uh, unmotivated and sort of falls into some really um, dodgy practices, takes some performance-enhancing drugs um, Mm -hmm. and really struggles with body image, really struggles with um, eating and body image. I thought it would be interesting to sort of flip that and uh, focus on a boy character who's experiencing those things.
1: No, that's so important because I know myself I only really write um, towards women because that's my niche but mm. the rates of eating disorders in boys is growing every year so it's you know I think it's fantastic that you've actually done that so
0: there isn't much out there too there you isn't know. there isn't read a lot of characters the boy characters who are struggling in that way you know mm. And I'll be honest, I, I sort of, for Christian who's a boy character, I did use a lot of my own experience in rowing and and the sort of body issues I had and and felt, you know, when I was participating in that sport and other sports as well. I was a swimmer, I'm in my earlier teen years and I played water polo, so I did find it very hard. There was a lot of sort of. Um, there were weigh-ins and skinfold tests and you know there was a lot of comparison between rowers Um, Mm. yeah I found it really tough mentally very tough. So we grew up
1: I mean you're a couple of years younger than me but we grew up in the 80s (laughs) (laughs) and when you know diet culture was really I mean obviously it's been around longer than that but it really really sort of exploded in magazines and sort of quite toxic and has, has continued to be so. What impact did this have on you growing up, especially being in sport? I mean, you're talking about the weigh-ins and the, you know, I mean, that's it's pretty full on, isn't it, for, for people in sport? I think still these days, there's still a lot of, uh, what's the word, expectation around body size and weight and uh, eating practices and...
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if you're in competitive sport, there's just a white hot spotlight on your body how it performs, how it looks, how it compares to other people that you can, you know, you're competing against. You know, you're often in uniforms, which are quite skimpy, you know, maybe bathers or, you know, in the case of rowing, it was a zoot suit. There's like, Nothing more unforgiving than a zoot suit. What skin is a tight. zoot? I've never heard of that.
1: What is a zoot suit? What is I can't even say it.
0: A zoot. It's, a, it's an all-in-one suit ah. that's skin tight and it's sort of got shorts and um, a top, um, really hard to, to get away with much in those. I think it's really tough for athletes, you know, whether you're a teenager or not. Mm. And I think especially in the time that I grew up, which was sort of in the 80s and 90s, there Mm. was a lot of diet toxic stuff going on like, I remember Weight Watchers was quite big, still is. Uh, yep. Jenny Craig, it was light and easy, <laughs> you know. There were a lot of those kind of, and re- but also really wild diets that just, you know, terribly unhealthy that you'd read about in, you know, your Women's Day magazine and you'd actually do it. So I was definitely caught up in all that stuff, yeah.
1: I was actually, I believe you know Fiona, she works with your sister. Yeah, I was speaking to Fiona Sutherland the other day about exactly all those diets. So we'll be talking mm-hmm. about those in greater detail in another episode. Oh with Fiona so there was some crazy crazy sort of practices and something that I mentioned to her certainly for me around that time it was really moving between weight watchers one week you know you don't lose anything or you end up putting on and then the following week back to Jenny Craig and you've got lifetime memberships at all these places so it's yeah, yeah. and I didn't really say this with Fiona but so shaming and I know for me when bulimia first started it was while I was actually participating. It started earlier, but when it really cranked up is when I went to, I won't say which place, but one of these places. Mm. And because of the weigh-in and the shame around being different places, either in front of your consultant or in front of a group of people, everyone queuing there to, to get weighed in front of each other. I mean, it's just crazy, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it was, you know, I might not have been lining up at a Weight Watchers meeting, but I was lining up in a rowing shed, yep. you know, with a big big set of scales and my coach standing there with a clipboard um, oh, and, my you know, God. what I weighed determined whether or not I would row in that boat or what position I might row. You know, it was that important. It was, um, you know, they, they would have names for you if you were a bigger rower that you, that you would be in the meat seats of the
1: oh boat oh god you're kidding yeah
0: yeah and so it really you know really brought it home you know and the, I don't know if you know as well in rowing they have lightweight and heavyweight rowers okay so in that category of lightweight you know you have to make weight so it's very similar to being a jockey
1: okay where
0: your crew has to weigh a certain amount you know um, together so if anyone's slightly heavier <laughs> then you're oh sort of my bringing god. down the- yeah, the whole boat sort of is like you know, uh, and so you'd see these lightweight rowers, you know, running, you know, plastic outfits and trying to sweat mm. <laughs> sweat drop the weight off. And I was, I was just, you know, it was madness because, you know, they were highly tuned athletes as well, you know, and they needed to to eat well and to mm-hmm. you know, get the sustenance, and they just weren't getting it. So it was a it was an extremely toxic environment for a teenager. Wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, that just sounds. I can't even find words for it. You know, just just even the language, the meat seat. It's you know, it's just yeah, really so shaming and Mm -hmm. yeah, that's tough. So, how did you overcome all that? You know, because obviously, (laughs) you've spent quite a lot of time, you know, sort of throughout. You know, that's quite a long period of time doing all that kind of stuff. How did you work through that in terms of your your own body image and, I guess, the toxic diet culture that you grew up in?
0: Yeah, I thought about this question quite a lot. I was going through your questions last night and you know pondering when i might have just let go of that those feelings and <clears throat> and it wasn't you know until my mid 30s if I'm to be totally honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Because right through, you know, my 20s and my 30s, I was still exercising in a really unhealthy way. For example, I wouldn't be able to go swimming unless I, like I couldn't swim 39 laps, for example. It had to be 40. Uh, Or, you know, I couldn't go on a light walk. It had to be a run, you know, at full pace. Yeah. I couldn't sit through a yoga class until you know, for a long time because it was just lying. I thought it was just lying there and I wasn't sort of, you know, burning calories or whatever you, you were supposed to do. In, so there was exercising. always,
1: yeah, so there was always this kind of judgment and expectation attached to it. There was no kind of just exercising. Yeah, just exercising <laughs> to have joy or to to move your yeah. body or, yeah. Yep. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, even in my thirties, I, I started doing some competitive um, ocean swimming, which is the open water stuff. I like yep. to punish myself. Um, even out there in the beautiful beaches and this stunning, you know, clear water. You know, once I even swam with dolphins out there while I was racing. Even then, I was still trying to beat my goals and get into the top three and get the medals and da da da. Training to the point of you know being really sick after training sessions. You know, just you know just exhausted. And um, when Sophie came along, when I became pregnant, you just, you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And you start to realise that, you know, you're slowing down and you're, and also I just started to come into more joy around exercise, you know, Mm because it was so rare that I got to exercise by myself because I always had a pram, not a lot of time to myself. But then, you know, when I, (laughs) when I could finally drop her at the, you know, swimming pool crèche or whatever, I just enjoyed that hour to myself, you know, just swimming along and, yeah, I wasn't counting laps anymore necessarily. I was just really enjoying being in the water. Um, and I, I could get through those yoga classes finally, finally, you know, and really mm. just lie there. And, it, you know, I used to love Shavasana at the end, you know, yep. <laughs> whereas before I could not have done that. I would have just stood up and walked out um, and probably gone running or something.
1: Well, the, and, I, and look, that's quite common. And, and you'll find that even people who have a diet history or a, a disordered eating history, when they do participate in yoga, it does tend to be the sort of harder, faster, sweat, you know, hot kind mm-hmm. of types of yoga because of that sort of attachment to it ne- needing to be doing something and, and, and rather than actually being and being present and slowing down and breathing.
0: Yes, exactly, yeah. I mean, I think around food, like, you know, I was always, always used to eat for training
1: purposes. Oh, you know? okay. Um,
0: my sister who is also, you know, works with people with eating disorders, mm-hmm. I remember she remarks one time that I had eaten the same sandwich for nearly a year, the same oh. sandwich every day for lunch, which was, I remember it, avocado, lettuce, tomato. <laughs> On multigrain bread for, for a year because I that's what I need to fuel my body. So I wasn't like thinking about food necessarily as something joyful and something that I can enjoy. So I, I really moved away from that, you know, in in my thirties, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and towards my forties as well, and just you know, eating for joy, yeah, <laughs> for pleasure, yeah, <laughs> that's been great. And so if, if I
1: guess. You know, if, if someone's, and I think we'll keep it with with your experience. So, if someone is in a competitive sport, or mm-hmm. they are um, going through some of these concerns themselves, what advice would you give them? Because you know, we might yeah. I mean, I I, I guess we'll probably have people listening to this probably from eighteen plus. But um, you know, if if they're still. And and we get a lot of this, you know, I'll get people who are only eating certain foods because of um, certain sports that they're doing and whatever else. And there's a very big link between CrossFit and like paleo keto, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So what what advice would you give to someone struggling with these issues? <clears throat>
0: Um, I think, you know, if you are struggling, find a wonderful therapist who really gets it mm-hmm. would be my number one thing. So you can talk to, cause a lot of it's, you know, really, you know, it can have gone on for years and years and it can really become ingrained in your mm. thinking and, and your actions. Yeah. So a wonderful therapist, I would say, and maybe this is controversial, but unless you're having surgery or unless there's some great need, stay away from scales. Yeah, I have found that they have not been helpful for me in any way. <laughs>
1: Look, as an eating disorder therapist, and I'm sure your sister would say the same, and, and anyone else mm-hmm. in the field, it is something that we absolutely fundamentally disagree with. We got rid of them in my house, I think, when I first started my therapy. My mum yeah. looks after my kids before they went to stay there. I said, mum, can you please move your scales away? I don't want the kids sort of weighing themselves. Mm-hmm. So... Look, I, I fundamentally agree with that. I think it's very problematic.
0: It is. It is. Yeah. yeah, particularly if you're an athlete, you know, and you might be compared to someone else that you're, you know, you're in a boat with, or you're, you know, mm-hmm. on the same gymnastics team or whatever. You know, you just don't need that pressure, right? And it doesn't mean a lot sometimes, you know. But what if the coach is saying, "No, you need to be weighed." Yeah, well, I mean, I had this experience a couple of days ago. I went to see a GP and actually not even the GP but the lady at the front desk said, oh, my God, (laughs) how tall are you and can you please step on those scales or tell me what you weigh in front of the entire waiting room? And I said, no, I will not give you that information because I don't think it's relevant.
1: (laughs) Good girl, good girl. Because I
0: was going there for a referral, so I was like, it's not relevant. Uh, But I watched everyone else in that room who came in did do it. They did stand on the scales and they did Mm. let her read out their weight. What is that weight again? She read it out. She wrote it down. And I thought, (laughs) oh, my God. (laughs) You know, you can say no. You can say no to a coach. You can say no to a doctor. Unless yep. it's, you know, they're giving you a certain amount of medication and they need to know how much you weigh, then you sure. can say no, I think would be my major thing. You know, don't be bullied.
1: <laughs> and I guess I want to say about that, there's nothing wrong with the weight that you are when you get weighed. And there's nothing mm-hmm. shameful even about calling out a weight. It's just a weight. Mm-hmm. But The issue is, is that it has nothing to do half of the time with the reason that you're going there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, yeah. You know, if you're going for, I, I know myself going to the doctor, you know, going for a pap smear, what has that yeah. got to do with my weight? Zero. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I went for a skin yeah. check and the lady had mentioned something about paleo. I thought, what has this got to do with my skin check?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I think you have to push back, don't you? Like, you, do. I mean, when, you do. When people start to go into those sort of dodgy areas or that you feel are triggering for you. Just no, just step away and and you know, have your boundaries, and I think that's really important. Oh, god, you, it takes so long to learn that, or oh, it to does really fully embrace that, and it's taken me a long, long time
1: actually. The receptionist or whatever, but doctors typically can be a little bit intimidating too, I find. Well, I, I did mm-hmm. when I was younger, um, not so much now, but certainly, I think for younger people, it's quite a sort of patriarchal sort of system, as well an oppressive system, in my opinion. Mm. But
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a funny one, isn't it? I remember going to see a GP when I was at probably my fittest um a super super fit doing a lot of like long distance swimming I um, mean I felt fantastic I don't know why I was at the doctor <laughs> but I did feel fantastic at that yeah. time and I remember she said oh can you hop on the scales and I did and she said oh oh, overweight and I think I, you know what? I, I was just gobsmacked I was like <laughs> I said but are you looking at me mm. and we had this really tense moment where she kind of did look at me and I sort of went, oh, okay, and moved on to something else. But I just thought, oh, how weird to go on a number on a page and not just look at the person in front of you, you know, and that was a big wake up call for me. And I think from that point on, yeah, I really haven't um, agreed to any weigh-ins or mm. doctor pressure. Yeah. Yeah. But also, we're t- overweight what? Over what weight? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean,
1: oh, it's crazy. Yeah. It is. So <laughs> let's get back to your writing for a second. So if we're sort of thinking about how people could maybe utilise writing in their recovery from food and body Mm -hmm. image concerns, how can it help them? So what kind of things can, you know, if they're maybe they don't have a therapist, maybe they want to use journal writing or something. What's your advice for people in terms of how they can use writing to help them?
0: Yeah, well, I think any creative arts is helpful as a form of therapy. But particularly writing, because it's um, something that you can do that's just for you. It's very expressive. Um, you can work through your feelings about anything. I think it's amazing. I mean, that's something that I saw really when I was working in the homeless community. These very marginalized people um, who were really struggling and many of them quite damaged, you know, came to this writing group every week and we would do just two hours of different exercises you know and they were some of them were really fun exercises some of them were not for not for sharing so we wouldn't read them out and it would mm-hmm. just be just you know have flow and just get everything out of their head we call it free writing I think it's amazing I think it's it's one of the the greatest therapies around if it works for you and, and you know you're not locked into it you don't feel like the pressure of having to write everything down but if you can just use it almost like you would a painting. Yes, um, okay. to express yourself and to work through, you know, what's going on in your life. It's wonderful. And Do it's- you write in that way?
1: I journal, and yeah, but, but yeah. typically I find myself starting off writing and I always end up like drawing or painting or sometimes just scratching the page with the pen because I'm angry or <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll start writing about something that I'm pissed off about or something and then all of a sudden there's <laughs> holes in the page.
0: No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't always, I'm the same, I don't <laughs> always find writing really restorative and I sometimes find it quite difficult. And particularly when I'm writing really full-on scenes, you know, really difficult mm. scenes, you know, I can think, oh, it's almost like I have to work myself up for it. Yeah, but what about
1: that when people do journal write, for example, or they are writing their life story and they have feelings come up? Any advice about that? Because some people, you know, we might be, I guess, having people listening today who maybe have never been in therapy. They've got a trauma history. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess once you start to put pen to paper and you do, for example, start writing those stories, when the feelings do come up, what would you say to them about that?
0: I mean, I don't think I'm an expert at that at all. But I mean, I think I would just say, you know, if it's important to you to keep it private, certainly keep it private. You don't have to share this stuff. Um, You know, you don't have to you know, read it out at your family dinner or <laughs> or find a writer's group or whatever and, and start sharing this deeply personal work. It's for you. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, if it brings stuff up that you want to then talk through, that can just be a really useful bridge to, to, to you know, some form of therapy. I uh, think that's
1: important around exposure because I th- people with a trauma history do tend to expose too much too soon sometimes. Yeah. And so keeping things private I think is, you know, some
0: it's really important. good advice. It is. It yeah. is. I sometimes go to writing groups where people read their work aloud and that's mm-hmm. great. Sharing is wonderful. Mm. But you do sort of pick the people who are working through issues in their life and have brought the brought it to the table in that way mm. and that's not really what writing groups are about. Mm. Um, that's what private writing can be about but not, you know, not necessarily in that space because, you know, we might be workshopping it and saying, mm. you know, how hey, you can improve the characters or whatever. <laughs> oh, and my that, that God. Person. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this, I, I remember someone, you know, bringing a lot of sort of high school trauma to the table and mm. and there's really not much you can say about that except that that's great that they're working through it through their writing but you can't really make that writing better because that's not what it's really about, you know. And I think a lot of people do p- write poetry that way just to mm. feel connected and to express their, you know, their feelings about the world and themselves or their relationships. And That's, yeah, really, that's so
1: important I think around you're talking about boundaries again in terms of, you know, really taking care of oneself and also some experience experiences, and I even see this in the therapy world where they're led by therapists, they're not always as contained as what they need to be for people's trauma. So I think, you know, just advice to people is to really check in with yourself around what's okay to share and what's not okay to share.
0: Yeah, I think that's true as well. Mm. A lot of stuff I don't share. I've got so much stuff that is not for sharing. mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's just for me, you know, like, Lots and lots, thousands and thousands of words, actually, that will never see the light of day, that will never be published. Um, wow. But I think makes me a more open person, makes me understand things more clearly in my own life. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you
0: using it personally and, um,
1: mm-hmm. the, you know, there's the professional piece as well. So, I mean, we touched on this a little bit earlier around, I want to get back to the YA again because mm-hmm. most of the people listening today will be adults. And I read somewhere that approximately 55% of YA readers adults. So I know for me, and we talked about this earlier, that my inner teenage self could totally identify with the characters. What's your sense about why so many adults are reading? Uh, I wrote genre, but that's incorrect. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, people have t-shirts that they wear that says YA is not a genre. <laughs> ah, I need one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's <That's> funny. Anyway, <laughs> they get very passionate about that point.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so... Yes.
0: Yeah, so 50%, your... I mean 50% of readers 55% are adults. apparently. 50, over 50%, that's yeah. incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I don't think about that so much as a writer of YA because I don't want to be writing for adults ever. Okay. I really, really want to be inclusive to that teen audience. Yeah. Um, I write for them. And there's an expression that we use in the YA community, which is teens to the front, uh-huh. um, sort of get out of the way adults because adults are really invested in YA, particularly you know certain YA series. Uh, but they're really for teenagers and should be for teenagers. However, I think adults are reading YA because they're really good books, yeah, yeah. generally speaking. And I don't, yeah. I don't want to speak for all of the YA books, but yeah. many of them are, are just awesome. They're compelling. They have really high stakes, complex themes often. Like a lot yeah. of my friends who haven't read YA then read it and they're like, wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's
1: exactly what I, I was like. <laughs> oh, my
0: God. How have I not discovered this before? Exactly, yeah, yeah. You think it's going to be simplified, but it isn't. It's anything but that, you mm-hmm. know. But the thing that makes Wire great to read is that the prose, the writing is really straightforward, very clear. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you don't get that in adult books mm. sometimes. They're very self indulgent, the writers. They can go off on mad, you know, tangents everywhere, and they're, mm. oh, there's, you know, a lot of the words they use are quite long and complicated, and the, yeah, the way they write maybe isn't as accessible as it could yeah. be. Yeah, and also I think with why I very often, most often, hope is offered. Where, yeah, that's really important. Yeah, where you might not see that in adult books. You might just get um, really hopeless endings.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about um, a book that I know we read and we've talked about over coffee with some of the other school mums, A, a Little Life, you know, when you're thinking oh, about all those thousands of pages and, well, we won't ruin the ending for someone who hasn't
0: seen it, but... Yeah, no, and I not, there's validate. not a lot of hope there. <laughs> no, yeah, I love that book. Oh, did I love it? No, I could not stop reading that book. But yeah, it was so bleak, wasn't it? It's very rare you'll get a book like that in YA. You mm. often have this really lovely lining of hope and a hopeful mm. ending. You know, even if a writer is is dealing with like you know, apocalyptic themes or mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> The world is ending. Um, Very like, relevant right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Can't wait to see what comes out of this period in the I YA space. It's going to be interesting. Yeah.
1: It is. And I'm thinking too from a, um, from a therapist's perspective, I work with parts work, so sub-personalities mm-hmm. or it's also called internal family systems. And so for me, when I read these books, it's like all my different parts on the pages, you know, and mm-hmm. really being able to give those parts that didn't have a voice as a teenager, giving them a voice through reading these novels. So like, oh, you know, we talk- interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah. like we talked about earlier around that angry sort of teenager. You know, mm. she was always for me, you know, and for most people with eating issues, especially emotional eating and binge eating, the anger is often squashed down with the food. Especially for women, it's not acceptable to be angry. So for me reading these books, it's like there's this this part of me that didn't get to have her voice is is coming out through these stories. So I, I think they're just wonderful. Wow.
0: That's wonderful to hear. Actually, that you can kind of almost relive those early years, those teen years, and, and think about them in a different way, or feel validated. Or exactly. I really like that idea. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And and you know, obviously, we're not aiming them towards adults, but if there's adults no. listening, I would definitely say give it a go.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And so your latest middle-grade novel, uh, The Little Wave, was shortlisted for the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and the 2020 CBCA Children's Book of the Year Awards. It's now being adapted for the stage by Meerkat Productions. It was a shift to writing for a younger audience and you're having such wonderful success, not surprisingly. We absolutely loved it. We sat on Manly Mm -hmm. Beach reading it.
0: (laughs) And, (laughs) uh, And, in fact, I was the
1: first person from Manly Library to borrow it.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> Isn't that um, great.
1: It is, and what's happening with the little wave? Do you want to tell people a little bit about it? Oh,
0: sure. Yeah. So I kind of moved out of YA and wrote for a middle grade audience. So roughly speaking, eight to 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. And I also wrote in a different style. So I wrote it in verse, which I don't know if many people know what it is, but it's basically words on only one side of the page written a little bit like poetry, but quite accessible poetry. Okay. Um, Yeah. So um That's been amazing to to try that to sort of push myself as a writer. Mm. I thought, you know, I could write another YA, you know, because of you was very well received mm-hmm. and had done well, so I guess you know I was well placed to write another one. But I just, I don't know, I just wanted to try something new. So that's mm-hmm. been amazing to try it and to have people like it. I noticed that there were still some of those
1: themes in there, so it wasn't, um, yeah, which is fantastic like
0: you know obviously being a therapist I love things like that for my own kids so (laughs) yeah Yeah, there's there I mean there is heavy themes in the little way for sure Mm. but I hope not didactic and um, just offering you know different situation different family situations so you know one of the girls um, Lottie she's experiencing her you know her mother has uh, recently died her father Mm. is a hoarder and their house is full of junk and um, Mm. she just sort of doesn't know what to do about that and then there's another boy who's living in a rural situation and his mother is struggling with addiction although mm-hmm. it's very very lightly touched on and yeah um, I think a lot of kids may miss it that might be for the more adult readers I think or the older readers yeah so I mean it's certainly I'm not offering like a perfect view of the world I never mm-hmm. I don't do that in my books um, because I don't think the world is perfect and it isn't perfect for kids either they are experiencing all this stuff
1: if I think about my own childhood by the age of sort of 10 to 12 I was you know single parent family so my brother and I were at home we were already cooking you know at 10 and 12 years old and stuff like that so and actually my father over the years has if you were to go to his property he you know there's like 100 guitars 100 bikes he's definitely on the hoarding side so uh, and I've known that my whole life you know we used to uh, sort of go walking around Hurstville markets and stuff and like junk just junk everywhere so I think kids will be able to identify with these characters and these themes and not feel so alone.
0: Yeah, that's the whole point, isn't it? I yep. mean, it's it's very difficult to write books and I don't make a lot of money from it, to be honest. Yeah, What I do it for is to provide that for kids, you know, yep. uh, that sense of them not being alone. And I think it's a vocation <laughs> rather yep. than a job. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed on your website that you are currently writing another book for the same age range and it's due for release in 2021. And that's with Hatchet Australia. And I love the title. Talk- Title. Can you share what it is and what your next novel's about?
0: Yeah, so I haven't really even announced this publicly, but really, I mean, oh. I've mentioned it in a few places. But yeah, it's okay. really um, still quite on the download. But it's um, it's called Are You There, Buddha? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it'll be out I think around July next year, 2021. Mm-hmm. So what I intended it to be is like a modern day Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret written by Judy Bloom, you know, so it's a period book. It's about puberty and getting your first period Um, and that, yeah, that huge time in a a girl's life. And it's also about, because I can't just write about one thing, it's also about (laughs) blended families and how you cope with that. There's an absent parent. It's about love and friendship. It's about a lot of other things. It's actually about competitive swimming as well, which is the Mm -hmm. first time I've written about that and my, it sort of it reflects on a bit of my personal experience there. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if I would finish this book. Um, I actually came back to Australia last year in September, went to Brisbane and did a fellowship called the May Gibbs Fellowship.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: May Gibbs being a very famous Australian writer, she left some money behind and this money goes to supporting children's writers around Australia to basically just write their next thing or illustrate their next thing. So they give you a, a apartment for a month
1: and oh, you wow. sit and
0: you finish whatever you set out to do. Oh my <laughs> goodness, I totally need
1: that to start middle and finish my book.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. It seems it is the gift of time, that's how yeah. they describe it. Um and it is, but it's very difficult. I was climbing the walls. I found it very hard, you know, away mm. from family and friends, you know, because I, I don't know many people in Brisbane. Although the city was very generous and did sort of bring me into the literary circle. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was really hard. So I finished um, Are You There, Buddha on that retreat, brought it back to Singapore, polished it up a bit, and it actually ended up being one of my most sort of sought after books. Um, a wow. couple of publishers, yeah, there was a bit of a, a small auction, which has never happened to me in my career. <gasps>
1: That's exciting.
0: Yeah, it was great and I ended up going with Hachette who, you know, I have an enormous amount of respect for the books that they bring out and I'm very excited about this book.
1: I can't wait and, you know, I'm okay. interviewing a lady called Lara Owen about menstruation and getting a first period and stuff like that. So oh, wow. it sounds like a great little book to add to that too. I hope
0: so. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like, from my perspective, I never really wanted to get my period. I was very against the whole idea. So I really wanted to write it from that point of view, like a, you know, a girl who's, you know, praying essentially to Buddha not to get her period as opposed mm, to, you gosh. know, oh, there, God it's me, Margaret, she's praying to get her period. So I thought oh, I'll just flip that because I'm interested in that. Yeah. Um, so I'll be really interested to hear your your interview yeah Yeah. I can't wait to speak to her it's it's going
1: to be great because she she actually on her website and when I was doing the research she mentioned that she was really really excited to get hers but uh, when it happened nothing happened no one made a fuss no one acknowledged it and it all sort of just Mm -hmm. died a death pretty quickly and (laughs) and well except that it goes on for the next 40 years but (laughs)
0: yes exactly
1: (laughs) bet we're going to open that up a little bit. So, and I was uh, one of my questions for her actually is, what can we do to celebrate, you know, daughters in their coming of age? And so, yeah, it'll be it'll be good to talk about that. So, I was thinking about our own daughters. My daughter turns eleven next week, uh, mm-hmm. or actually this week now, and thinking about that time coming up, and and really how to celebrate that in a way that's not shaming and. Mm-hmm. Because I I know for myself it was, I think we learnt from Cleo and Dolly magazine back in the day.
0: Yeah, those magazines saved me. And having an <laughs> older sister. Having an older sister was great.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, we are coming to an end.
0: I know, uh, what a great chat.
1: I know, I know. <laughs> and um, so tell, uh, I know we're on air, but, um, and obviously no one can fly at the moment, but are you planning on coming? Well, we can't go anywhere. but. Are you planning on coming back anytime soon or? Yeah, look,
0: I was supposed to be in Australia this week for for Book Week um, in Australia, which is a huge event. Um, And I was, because I'm shortlisted for the Book of the Year, I was going to go to the Fancy Party and oh how disappointing it's very disappointing but they have moved book week to october Ah. um, october 19 um but i think even then it's going to be a stretch so now i'm really hoping that perhaps i can get back um next year for the release of my book oh that'd be fantastic yeah yeah it'd be amazing i mean i can come back i just have to spend some time in a hotel room which i'm not that keen to do (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly and so um Where can our listeners find you?
1: So um, I know you've got a website. Can you tell us uh, the link
0: for that? Sure. Uh, So my website is just Mm pipharry.com. And I'm across most socials. So you can find me on Instagram or uh, Twitter as at piphaz, H-A-Z, um yeah and you can buy my books you know from booktopia is a good one huh? or your local independent bookstore we have to support independence at the moment because they're doing it pretty tough
1: yeah absolutely and i've got to say i love following your instagram because living in singapore and being a foodie you've got some um you're always posting <laughs> such <laughs> i always think oh i wish i was there that looks so good <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love posting food pictures. I know it's so cliched, isn't it? <laughs> I just love shooting like nasi lemak and chicken rice and all the Singaporean dishes that I guess yeah. are exotic to people elsewhere. For me, they're pretty standard because I've been here for five years. But um, my number one ranking photo of
1: yours was definitely the masala dosa. So
0: oh yeah, so good. <laughs> All it's right. so cheap as well.
1: <laughs> I know. I remember when TP's. we were there. We actually went to um, Little India and had a tali, and it was so cheap
0: yeah it's like four dollars you know more food than you could possibly eat you know it's just amazing
1: that's right (laughs) okay well look thank you so much for coming on the show I'm sure our audience are just going to get so much out of your wisdom and your expertise and I hope that some of them go out and uh, buy one of your books I think they'd get a lot out of it so and especially you know now uh, for people with children uh, in that age group and I can't wait for your Buddha
0: book to come out. It sounds fantastic. Thank you so so much. Thanks for having me, Jodie. I've really enjoyed this chat.
1: Since recording this episode, Pip has won the CBCA Book of the Year Awards for young readers for her book, The Little Wave. I'm sure you'll join me in congratulating her. I'm going to post a link to the CBCA Awards video in the show notes. This is episode 10. For the show notes, go to thesoulcentre.online forward slash Soul Sessions 10, Young Adult Fiction, Mental Health and Identity. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
0: Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jodie's free 65-page ebook at the soulcenter.online. Until next time.